Listen up and take a knee. I didn't budget for 40. Never thought I'd live to see 30. Now I'm 50. Tired of the horse shit. It's time to throat punch the weak sauce that masquerades as manhood 20 years into the 21st century. And I better start with my own. Welcome to St. Hank's. This is the American Badass's Guide to Everyday Sainthood. And who am I? Well, I was killed twice on basic cable by Bigfoot. And I could parallel park a school bus. But don't worry about that. I'm more knucklehead than badass. Somehow, after misplaying nearly every hand that life dealt me, I'm sitting here at the final table, the money round, the cash game, with a huge stack of chips. But those chips are worthless unless I push them into the middle of the table. Unless I commit, really commit to something. So let's worry about who I'm trying to become. And that is Hank. You do it as tough as it is possible to do. And you do that in all things. I don't know who Jake Cutler is. Hey, if you want a father, I'll give you a spanking. Popcorn. Hit the yard, me. If you could, you would. When there's nothing left to burn, you have to set yourself on fire. Every love story is a ghost story. Every love story is a ghost story. The man who wrote those words was my teacher once, nearly 30 years ago. And he was much more than that. He was greatly loved and revered and sometimes misunderstood. He is now himself ghost. And like love stories and ghost stories, this story will have a lot of points of overlap and divergence and near misses, misfires, seeming failures and switchbacks and blind alleys and ghosts. This story will talk about at least two stories I wrote 27 years ago that figure in both stories now. A real-life story about ghosts I loved and a love story, aided and abetted by ghosts. Years ago, I was mourning one of these ghosts. I was walking a popular trail around a man-made lake in Seattle when I was overcome. We had just lost T, the student-athlete I told you about in the St. Hank's Thanksgiving special episode, and I wasn't taking it well. The memorial had only been a short time earlier, and I was listening to a song that raised the specter of having outlived a much younger, probably better man. In my mind, I was addressing an imaginary auditorium of students, past and present, and I was telling them, I'm supposed to be invited to your weddings, not your funerals. Maybe I should be ashamed to say this, but I teared up a little. More than a little. But headphones in, sunglasses on, walking a paved trail in a major city, no one was going to bother me. Probably no one was going to recognize me. Or if they did, they were going to mistake me for someone. More on that another time. But the chances of me being recognized were practically non-existent. But she did recognize me 
right out of the past she walked with a boyfriend. So (sighs) this brilliant, beautiful redhead I met nearly 30 years ago who seemed to pop up in my life every few years, sometimes in person, sometimes in some stray comment from a mutual friend or a chance encounter downtown when we happened to live in the same great American city, which wasn't often. Sometimes we'd get together. We help each other with our resumes or something equally romantic. Or now, as I was falling apart emotionally on a walking trail, suddenly haunted by the loss of far too young ghosts. I don't know how many times she'd said my name before I caught on, before the outside registered on the more real than reality insides. Through my self possession and the music in my headphones, I think she'd given up or decided it wasn't me when I finally heard her and stopped. Our conversation didn't last too long, but one of us needed help with something. Somehow I ended up with her email or phone number, or maybe I already had them. Remember, every word of St. Hank's is true. Probably none of it ever really happened. Somehow, we left with the promise to connect soon. Over something everyday and innocent. At least nothing that raised the boyfriend's antenna. Besides hellos and nice to meet you, I don't remember him saying anything. And David Foster Wallace, the writer, my teacher, was there. Nearly 30 years later, when that brilliant and beautiful redhead and I had our first real date, which I didn't know was a date, he was there, his memory, his ghost, and someone pretending to be him, flickering in light at 24 frames per second on the big screen in a nearly empty theater. And now I live in this town, where I first met that brilliant, beautiful redhead in our 20s, early 20s. Where, almost 30 years later, we were married by a judge named Judge Judge. Really, that's his name. Beautiful little ceremony. And where, nearly 30 years ago, I met generational talent and juggernaut of a writer, David Foster Wallace. And learned from him a lot of the lessons that became the famous commencement speech he gave years later. The one people know as, this is water. He's the kind of writer who, if you want to be a writer and you read him, it makes you feel like you've been writing in crayon. And in a way, he's still here with us in this town all these years later, the ghost of a teacher and an opportunity lost, joining at least two more ghosts, guys I lived with and also lost way too young, for them to go and way too young for me to handle it. In between here and there are lots of points of divergence, lots of ways crossing and recrossing, lots of what David Foster Wallace would call liminal spaces, the spaces in between, the thresholds we pass through, the space during a rite of passage between what you were and what you'll be, liminal spaces. This story already has four ghosts in it, but I promise it won't be a sad story, and I won't lead you to a dark place with this story, at least not too dark a place. But sometimes we have to pass through the shadowy woods to get to the brighter valley, through the ghost story, 
to the love story. Along the way, maybe we learn to love some of the ghosts. And maybe we love some of the ghosts enough to let them go. One thing I learned from hearing and living too many ghost stories, way too young and way too often in this life, it's the living who are haunted. But sometimes, it's the living who haunt. Jim White said it best. There are projects for the dead, and there are projects for the living. Life seems to work best when we set to our own work and leave others to their own projects as well, unless we need or are asked for help. And what a surprise! Like the English teacher I once was, I've only just talked my way to the raggedest edge of a point. First time I tried reading David Foster Wallace's Infinite Jest, it was just after it was released in 1996. I was sitting at an outdoor table, waiting for someone from the coffee shop inside to come out and tell me I needed to order something if I wanted to stay. Infinite Jest is more than a thousand pages long. Some of its footnotes have been published as short stories. It's the kind of book that people would like to appear to have read, but I wonder how many people have read it. There's a trick to reading Infinite Jest, which I've done three times completely and many times partially, but you'll see that I was more motivated than the average. You need three bookmarks. I learned that the second time through. Kind of like life, there's rules and helpful techniques which I never seem to know the first time I try something. Though I feel like I should be the best in the world at whatever it is the very first time I try it. That first time, which blew me away, but I otherwise got very little out of it. Kind of like my old approach to life. That first time, I looked up from Infinite Jest and saw that somebody, a talented somebody, had painted a mural in a liminal space, a gateway between two wooden fences near an alleyway. The mural was a garishly colored but beautiful figure, twisted and expressive, against a shadowy backdrop. There were words suspended in the shadowy air around the figure's head. The words read, I'll always love the false impression I had of you. Story of my romantic life. I definitely had false impressions of both this famous writer and the brilliant, beautiful woman I married almost four years ago. The worst false impression I had back then, back in my 20s, was how to deal with the loss of two friends. Two ghosts who were haunting me hard. I take that back. The worst false impressions I had were of myself. 27 years ago, he came to this town I now call home. A town I thought I'd never see again when I graduated from college. He came to teach a class in a workshop. He was already a meteorically rising literary star. He came to read from a story called How Don Gately Found God, which was part of a larger novel, larger in every sense of the word, called Infinite Jest. Infinite Jest, released 
25 years ago this week turned literature on its head. And eerily, it predicts a lot of what the world is like today, accurately. Zoom calls with backgrounds and hiding our faces. Well, read the sections on video calls he wrote in 1996 and see if it doesn't seem familiar. It's warnings of an entertainment so complete and compelling that people abandon everything in their life and die, making air quotes here, enjoying this entertainment. Well, let's see what develops at the intersection of virtual reality, social media, AI, and whatever's coming next. I had tons of false impressions at that time. I thought David Foster Wallace had come to my mid-sized university on the channeled scablands, geology buddy of mine told me that, to insult me. Now I know he'd come to show me how to, how to qualify for the life I wanted, the life I really wanted, a someday life. He came to warn me and to help me, or at least that's what he did. And he created a point of divergence, a road not taken that I'm only now reconciling and re-navigating onto the perfect road. I thought a brilliant and beautiful redhead wanted to create these convoluted intellectual arguments that I always lost to embarrass me. Turns out she just wanted me to shut up and kiss her, probably. Months before David Foster Wallace arrived in town, two guys I lived with died in a drunk driving accident. One died at the scene. The other lived a while on life support before passing on. I didn't handle it well. I began a pattern for dealing with life and life's setbacks and life's sadnesses and sorrows that would haunt me for years until I washed up on the shores of my late 30s and against my will was shown a better way of life. When the day came that I accepted that new way of life, only then would I remember something David Foster Wallace said to me 27 years ago. But at the time, my response was to avoid feeling anything. I did this by burying myself in work, schoolwork, and writing for the student paper and sometimes freelancing for real newspapers. When I couldn't do those things, I drank. I isolated at a girlfriend's house, the the one I decided to visit instead of riding to the party with my friends. I isolated away from my friends, especially the friends who shared this loss with me. Allow me a digression. Speaking of ghosts and ghost hunters, around this time, the couple who investigated the Amityville horror and now appear in the insidious series of movies came to our campus and did an investigation of the house I lived in. They found ghosts, but not of the two I lost. Not any ghost I knew and and I wasn't there when they were. They even held a seance in my house. That's a story worth revisiting later. I'd been pushing hard in school anyway. Even after transferring from a small private school in my home state, I was on track to graduate in four years. So pushing harder wasn't really an issue for me in the short term. Took a lot of credits to finish up. But this semester, I was taking an English class to have some fun. A writing class. Long story medium. 
My professor told us that somebody named David Foster Wallace was coming to give a two-week workshop. It was competitive to get in. While waiting for some film to be processed for either one of my newspaper stories or my photography requirement for my journalism degree, I wrote a short story, just a couple pages, based on a photo in an old Aperture magazine I leafed through while I waited. I typed the story, called Slept Through Church, and turned it in. Somehow I got into the workshop. Then I wrote another story called Tomorrow Danny for the workshop. This one was about the aftermath of that fatal drunk driving accident. It was set the day before my friend, not named Danny, that's fiction, was taken off life support. I promised I wouldn't let this story get too dark, so I won't. I'll now direct your attention to a more famous ghost, Abraham Lincoln, who some say dreamed his death the night before it happened. One day, a short man asked Honest Abe, how long should a man's legs be? Abraham Lincoln answered, long enough to reach the ground. In my story, Tomorrow Danny, I used a device when introducing new characters. You could tell where the character was in relationship to the tragedy by how far their feet were from the ground. One of the mothers who'd lost a son to, to this accident was sitting on a hospital lobby couch with her feet tucked underneath her. One of the fathers was rocked back on his heels, leaning against a wall for support. The narrator was sitting on a sun deck, looking at the ground past his feet, three stories below. The workshop was in the evenings. Punctuality and punctuation were equally important. I was late to the first meeting. I was on a leadership scholarship, and there was an event tied to that scholarship that ran late. I had to dress for the event, blazer, tie, slacks. Still, I showed up late, out of breath, overdressed, looking every bit the rube, and like Central Casting's idea of a jackass, like the villain of every college movie they've ever made. Though my punctuation was perfect. David Foster Wallace was not impressed. Even my self-centered, immature mind could see he hated me. And I don't blame him. Over the course of the workshop, he insulted me so beautifully and so perfectly on the chin a couple of times that one of the other students expressed at least mild concern to our professor. Wondered if there were some secret history between David Foster Wallace and I. I, who was a local master of the unwanted nickname and the perfectly aimed cutdown, was nearly helpless against his overwhelming intellect. Only once did I even land a countering blow, and then only because I overswung. The worst part was, he was usually right. David Foster Wallace had me pegged, nearly on sight, and we both knew it. The format of the workshop was this. Each day was devoted to somebody's story. There were nine of us, if memory serves. Read the story and make notes. Discuss the story in depth in class. Discussion directed by David Foster Wallace with the writer in the room. This is my memory, at least. Take that for what it's worth. But it's important to remember this. Because too often in life, I suspected the opposite. Here was someone who saw through me right away. In the horns and halo of first impression... I slapped on the horns and I kept them on, eventually adding hooves, a tail, and a pitchfork to complete the ensemble. 
Let's just say none of my tricks worked. This was somebody too smart to be conned, too piercing to be charmed, too much the legitimate real deal to suffer fools. My story was, of course, slated to be workshopped last. Two or three sessions before the workshop was over, David Foster Wallace said something about, but that only applies to people whose legs are long enough to reach the ground on this subject. It's not at all how we talked. Another student quickly pointed out to him that the line came from my story. He looked at me and smiled a little when he said, I know. It's a brilliant device. At the end of the workshop, David Foster Wallace was supposed to meet with all the students for 15 minutes individually, kind of like an exit interview. He and I met for 45 minutes. He gave me a lot of great advice. He was really encouraging. We hung out quite a little bit. He said something to me that I answered, but wouldn't really register until my late 30s, like I said earlier, when the wreckage of the way I lived my life spit me up on the shores of a new way of living. I'd remember it then. The university gave him a card that gave him visiting professor privileges on campus. Take it, he said. Maybe you can use it for a while. He nominated Tomorrow Danny for a college fiction prize. And he offered to recommend me to one of the best Masters of Fine Arts programs in the country to be taught by at least two of the best writers still writing today. I had a hundred reasons for not taking him up on it, none of which I can remember now. But I kept that card and I kept writing because this capital W writer came to my Podunk University, did not like me personally. Out of the thousands of students there, he picked me up, dusted me off, and told me I should be a writer too. And it was based entirely on the story I turned in. It was based on the words. I found that original manuscript for Tomorrow Danny a few years ago with his notes and his recommendation for the fiction prize and his signature. It's the first thing I posted on my Instagram. Check it out if you're interested or you think I'm making all this up because sometimes I think I made all this up because it was too perfect. There was no chance for my imposter syndrome to rear its ugly head and tell me I hadn't earned this. This guy was immune to everything about me that usually helped me succeed. He was interested only in the words. Later, my professor told me, David Foster Wallace said, He seems like a bozo, but there's really a lot going on there. Of course, at that time, all I heard was that my professor must have thought I was a bozo too, or he would have left that part out. I hadn't conned or scammed or charmed my way into this opportunity. I knew that, yet it still terrified me. The biggest ambition my mind and heart could handle at that time was to live in a city and make my living writing for newspapers or magazines. Months later, I followed the wrong woman to Seattle, where I got a job writing for newspapers, and I left the right woman behind. Because for a long time, my compass pointed south. David Foster Wallace had seen that and tried to help me write that situation. Like I said, I held onto that card and I kept writing, not just journalism. When I was writing for papers, I wrote my own stuff. When I was teaching, I wrote. When I helped build a house, I wrote. 
when I worked for UPS and helped my buddy with his two men in a truck moving company, I wrote. And I dreamed about the day when I would write and publish the story that would change my life, transform me completely. Then, David Foster Wallace and I would be at the real published writer cocktail party, backing up at the same time and bumping into each other. What are you doing here? Well, what are you doing here? David Foster Wallace passed away in 2008. So that party is never going to happen. There was never going to be a party anyway, because David Foster Wallace found a solution to that problem and lived that solution until the day he died. And I remembered later when I really needed to, I think he would have shared that solution with me if I'd asked him for it way back in 1992. And it turned out I'd already written the piece that would transform everything, that would change my entire life. It was a column in the student newspaper. Like David Foster Wallace's best advice, I forgot all about it until it became important again. Until the road taken looped and switched back and reconnected with the road not taken, with the path to what could have been all along. When the end of the tour, the movie they made about David Foster Wallace and the book tour that followed the release of Infinite Jest, when that was released in January of 2015, I had a problem. I knew none of my buddies would want to see it with me. It was two hours long, about a writer, showing only in a small downtown theater. My buddies were all making the suburban move then. Plus, One of them once accidentally watched Paris, Texas with me, and the word was out. Don't watch Court of Movies. I stand by that choice, offbeat as it may have been. Harry Dean Stanton and Nastasha Kinski, and a script by Sam Shepard, set in Texas and directed by a German. Come on, that's a can't miss. I knew one person who might go with me. And I asked her on what I didn't know was our first date. It was only after the movie that I found out that the boyfriend from The Walking Trail was long gone. The movie stirred up only a few ghosts. And I suddenly remembered one of my last college newspaper columns. I'd written a little message just for her. Slipped it into the publication obliquely, but in a way she couldn't miss if she was looking. It was like a message in a bottle. I told her about it. Told her I'd dig up a copy and showed her. But then I remembered my dumbass had used the word wife in that column. Beautiful, red-haired wife. As we dated more and more seriously, that word could be deadly. So I pretended I couldn't find the copy. Or I just left it at home this time, or blah, 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 whatever. I was a 46-year-old bachelor finally catching on to something good. I couldn't afford to have a misplaced word from 27 years ago blow up this whole fine romance. Until one day she said, why don't you just bring me that story so I can stop pretending I don't know what you're talking about? And then I knew. I'd written the life-changing piece all those years ago. And my message in a bottle had washed up on the right shore after all. 
My words had been found by the right reader. Now there's a lifetime more writing to be done. Stories to be told. Will I be getting my master's in writing from the best writers at one of our top universities? No. That ship has sailed. Path led on to path, and the way back to that opportunity is now choked off and overgrown. But I have this. This message in the bottle. I launch it out into the world. So far like clockwork. Once a week. And I have you. My friends. A growing number of you checking in on this conversation. And with everything else, that's enough. That's enough to make the best, the best of what's left. And what was the advice David Foster Wallace gave me? The forgotten, life-changing advice? David Foster Wallace looked me directly in the eyes, lowered his voice, and told me, point blank, you have got to quit drinking. You think it makes your writing better, but it won't. If you don't quit, it's going to cost you everything. It's going to take the writing away from you, along with everything else you ever cared about. I'm not sure how he knew about my drinking. And he was dead right. If I'd listened to him, if I'd thought about what drinking had already done to me and had already cost me, if I'd been at all in my right mind, I'd have admitted I had a problem and begged him to help me if he could. But I didn't. Instead, I said, I just started drinking. And I ticked off all the wonderful things drinking had brought to my life. Friends, leadership position, scholarships, girlfriend, on and on and on. Soon to all be gone. 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 So he did the most human thing he could do for a young person with potential, as both a writer and a drunk. He encouraged me, offered what help and direction he could, and he sent me off to the painful epiphany he must have known was waiting for me. And when I reached it, I understood. This was how I finally beat imposter syndrome. This is how I earned these opportunities. And I righted the ship. Slowly, slowly, slowly got it back on course. When I'm at my best, I'm doing good work for others and with the words. Really good work sometimes. I only wish he could have lived to see it, to hear it, and to know the part he played. To see the help he gave ripple out from this student of his. To my students. And now I pray to all of you. If you're stuck in one of those liminal spaces in between right now, or your legs don't quite reach all the way to the ground, keep your head up and your eyes on the horizon. This too shall pass. Wake up tomorrow, try again. Make the best, the best of what's left. David Foster Wallace was right about this too. At least sometimes. Definitely this time. This love story really is a ghost 
story. This has been a lesson from St. Hanks, the American Badass's Guide to Everyday Sainthood. I hope you were listening. This will be on the test.